Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and with me, as per usual, is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Mike. Hi, everybody. How are things down there in the Vancouver, Yale Town area? 10 out of 10, thank you. 10 out of 10? Yeah. That's a good thing. I like it when it's 10 out of 10. It's, it's, we're recording today, it's Sunday, and after we're done, I'm going to play a new board game. What's it called? Mansions of something. It's based on H.P. Lovecraft novels. Oh, Mansions of Cthulhu or something? or Mansions uh, of something. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You get like little action figures of Cthulhu, which is cool. That's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> the old gods. Yeah, absolutely. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Patine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. During the evening of Friday, October 13th, and the early hours of October 14th, 1978, a group of teens and young adults attended a gathering in a rural area of Maple Ridge, B.C. That night, 16-year-old Catherine Emma Pozabon went missing from the event. Her partially clothed remains were discovered on the afternoon of October 15th not far from the location of the party. Investigations revealed the presence of seminal fluid in her mouth, throat, and on her clothing, as well as a tuft of human hair grasped, grasped in her hand. The case was treated as a homicide by law enforcement, but without adequate evidence to pinpoint a suspect, the inquiry was eventually suspended. Two decades later, the case was reopened with the advancement of DNA profiling as a key tool for forensic investigation. Police tested the DNA profiles of the male party attendees against the evidence found on Kathy's body, and there was a match. Twenty years after she was murdered, Kathy's family finally saw justice. This is Dark Poutine Episode 293, Cold Case Turned Hot, The Murder of Kathy Pazabon. Maple Ridge, located in British Columbia, Canada, has a rich history that traces back to the times before European settlement when the Catesi and Kwantlen First Nations peoples inhabited the area. These indigenous communities lived along the rivers and coastlines, relying on the abundant natural resources for their livelihood. Maple Ridge is nestled between the Fraser River and the Golden Ears, which are part of the coast mountains, providing the town with a picturesque backdrop. Europeans first settled the area that would become Maple Ridge in the 1850s. Its name is believed to have originated from the maple trees that lined the shores of the Fraser River in the early days of the settlement. Maple Ridge was incorporated as a district on September 12, 1874, making it one of the older communities in British Columbia. Could you imagine a more Canadian name for your town than Maple Ridge? <laughs> it's pretty Canadian. 
Some of us who have lived there used to call it Maple Ditch. <laughs> <laughs> Maple Ditch? Why? You didn't you didn't like it? Uh <sighs> It was a different time in your life. It was a different time in my life, and there okay. were different... I, I had a different experience with the place that I might have today. Okay. Our neighbor was a bit of a sociopath. <laughs> oh, having a neighbor who's a sociopath is always difficult. Oh, it was really, really bad, to the point where we called police once. So, oh, gosh, that's yeah. horrible. The growth and development of Maple Ridge were significantly influenced by its geographical features, primarily the Fraser River and the rich, fertile land that was ideal for agriculture. Settlers engaged in farming, dairy production, and logging, utilizing the river for transportation and trade. Agriculture became the backbone of the local economy, with berry and dairy farms flourishing in the region. In addition to farming and logging, Maple Ridge's natural beauty and resources attracted leisure activities and tourism, the nearby mountains and waterways provided perfect spots for fishing, hiking, and nature appreciation. Over the years, Maple Ridge saw steady growth. The introduction of the Canadian Pacific Railway in the late 19th century further boosted the local economy by linking the community with larger markets and facilitating the transport of goods and people. Throughout the 20th century, Maple Ridge evolved, slowly transitioning from a primarily rural community into a more suburban one. This was particularly evident after World War II when many urbanites moved to Maple Ridge and the surrounding areas to take advantage of the more tranquil lifestyle and affordable land. This suburbanization accelerated in the latter half of the century as Vancouver's metropolitan area expanded. Despite the growth, Maple Ridge has maintained a balance between urban living and its rustic heritage. I lived in Maple Ridge between 2000 and 2005 and worked on films shot in the area from 2005 to 2009, so I know my way around. Maple Ridge officially became a city on March 26, 2014, but despite this change in status, it retains much of its small-town charm, with community events, historical sites, and ongoing commitment to preserving its historical legacy. The history of Maple Ridge is marked by its close relationship with the natural environment, and a community spirit that reflects both its indigenous roots and settler past. Maple Ridge honors its heritage through various community activities, museums, and cultural events celebrating its diverse history. As of 2022, the population of Maple Ridge is just over 96,000 people and growing. In 1978, Maple Ridge was a relatively small community as compared to today. At the time, it was more rural and less developed, with its landscape characterized by agriculture, forestry, and natural settings. The population in 1978 was much smaller, with a strong sense of community and a slower pace of life. Everyone knew everyone else. The economy was centered around local businesses, farming, and the lumber industry, which has been a traditional economic driver in many parts of British Columbia. Maple Ridge's proximity to Vancouver meant that it was also a community for people who might commute to the city for work while preferring to live in a more rural setting. As Maple Ridge was somewhat secluded in a smaller community, the tragic disappearance and subsequent murder of Kathy Pozabon had a massive impact on the residents there. A homicide case was particularly shocking and remained in the collective memory of the local population for years, especially as it was unsolved for 20 of them. This case was, in fact, suggested by several Dark Poutine listeners who'd lived in Maple Ridge and the surrounding area at the time and were moved by Kathy's murder. Well, I always um, think about the psychology uh, when our listeners write in to get us to, to cover stories from their local area. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you can help. You've been at this a bit longer than me, and I, I think there's obviously maybe a sense of commemoration for the victims and their stories. Sure, people want to commemorate, you know, somebody that they lost in their community. I wonder if us doing stories ever helps with, I don't know, a sense of closure or maybe some empowerment, being able to share the story and the details, so you're more empowered with information. I don't know. You know, I I have people from different places who write in about how they feel about us doing cases, and it's always positive. That's good. I mean, there's been a couple of negative comments, but that's usually unrelated to the place, more right. to a specific person. Okay. Um, so this one in particular, it's the kind of case where if it happened in my hometown, I would probably 
like to see it covered on a podcast, if that makes any sense. Right, because it's it's a young high school girl. Yeah, totally. Somebody yeah. who had her whole life ahead of her. Innocence. Yeah. So on Friday, October 13th, 1978, Kathy Pazabon, an average 16-year-old girl, joined some of her friends at the party held at the Blackstock Farm in Maple Ridge. The party was well attended, with estimates of the crowd ranging from 30 core partiers to as many as 100 people attending throughout the night. And this case is so relatable to me, as we just talked about. Kathy and her friends did what teens did at parties all the time. Uh, they drank, indulged in other intoxicants, and socialized with each other. Now, I recall plenty of parties that resembled this one, and I'm sure you do too, Matthew. Being too young to obtain booze legally, we'd wrangle alcohol in creative ways. Some of us would raid our parents' liquor cabinets, making a shit mix, some people called it moose piss, of various hard liquor, putting it in various containers. And as my mum made jams and other preserves, our basement had a supply of mason jars and other containers, which I used for my supply. Now, there were other ways to get booze. Our older friends were sometimes paid to go to the liquor store, filling up their trunks of their cars with orders from younger party attendees, illegally. On a few occasions, we'd asked a stranger to go into the liquor commission for us, offering to pay for their services. But more than once, the stranger would abscond with our money, leaving us without booze, and we'd be left scrambling to find another source of alcohol, and we spent more than one weekend dry as a result. We had two ways of, of going about it. So in my hometown of Strathroy, there's a big Portuguese community. Okay. And a lot of my Portuguese friends' parents made their own wine, so they, they had vats of the stuff, mm -hmm. which was potent. And we also, there's a, back then there was like one or two uh, unhomed people, I think yep. the, new, the new term is, in, in yeah. my town, and that hung out near the beer store. <laughs> We'd give them a fiver to go and get us beer. Yeah, I just remembered another thing. Uh, there was, <laughs> while you were talking... There was a bootlegger in my hometown, and her name was Barb. Now, I'm not going to say her last <laughs> Bar name. Barb the bootlegger. Barb the bootleg. That was exactly her. Bootlegger Barb. Well, the, the thing about Barb is she liked the young guys, so she would have her, her booze there. I never went in. Uh, a friend of mine, Dennis, actually went in there, and when he came out, he was white as a sheet, and and he <laughs> we were like, what, what, what happened? And... Uh, he was like, she made me give her a kiss before she gave me the booze. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. Ugh. Was she a MILF? No, oh. no, she was an an older lady, uh, rumored. This is a rumor, and, you know, it happens sometimes when you're an older person to have apparently some coarse facial hair. So yeah. it was it was an unpleasant experience. I'm an older person with coarse facial hair. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just happens. But when you're a kid, you know, 14, <laughs> 15 years old, and, and somebody who is uh, much older than you... Oh, dear. Yeah, wants you to give them a kiss for your, for your booze. That would play out very different in today, in this day and age. How would it? What In what way? 14, 15, instead of just being weird, it, this day and age, it's... Um, no, I, it's a crime. Yeah. Yeah, it would be sexual assault. I never yeah. thought of getting laid at 14 as being a crime, though. I, I was up for it. <laughs> At the Blackstock Farm, Kathy shared drinks with other friends and acquaintances. One of these people was Andrew Wayne Andy Larson and his buddy David Dave Hamilton. Larson, who was slightly older than Kathy, brought a gallon of wine to the event, which he offered to various attendees, including Kathy Pazabon. At one point, apparently, Kathy hesitated to return the wine bottle to Larson, prompting him to claim that the wine had been spiked with acid LSD. While there was no proof to support this claim, the tactic worked, and Kathy returned the remaining wine back to Andy. Later that evening, after becoming aware of the gathering of mostly underage drinkers, the RCMP arrived and broke up the party. I remember this happening to us, too, during my party days. The cops, often Bridgewater police, would show up and spoil the fun. I remember a few house parties at my buddy Brad's place being broken up by police. Partygoers, not wanting to get in trouble with the town clowns, fled out the doors and windows or hidden closets and kitchen cabinets to evade capture. I may or may not have done those things. 
After the Blackstock party broke up, undeterred, the party moved. Numerous guests from the party moved to another event at the Lady Farm at 209th Street and 128th Avenue, now listed on Google Maps as the Lady Pumpkin Patch. I know the area well as we lived just a few minutes' drive south in the early 2000s. Kathy Pausebaum, some of her friends, Andy Larson and Dave Hamilton, were among the 150 people attending the Ladyfield gathering. One partygoer, Kim Neubauer, said that while Andy and Dave appeared to have been drinking, it was unclear whether they were drunk. Kathy was observed engaging in conversation again with Andy Larson and other young men. She appeared cheerful and was playfully warned by her friend Leanne Edel to be cautious. Kathy embraced Leanne with a hug and their unique handshake a little after 11 p.m. and then dashed off toward the barns. That was the last time Leanne Edel saw Kathy alive. Meanwhile, Andy Larson was hitting on two other women at the lady party. Shortly after 11 p.m., Joan Johnson was in the process of leaving the field party in her car when Andy Larson stepped in front of the vehicle, urging her not to go. When she requested he move aside, he refused. Reacting, she eased her foot off the brake, causing the car to inch forward and bump into him. Larson then remarked aggressively that had she been a man, he would have killed her. Joan said this was odd behavior for Andy, who she knew was a generally easygoing and mild-mannered guy. That night, she remembered Andy being loud and obnoxious, and that he had that large bottle of wine, a gallon jug, in his hand the whole night at both Blackstock and Lady, including at the time of the incident with her car. Joan later recalled seeing Andy Larson outside of Price's convenience store, very intoxicated, at around 1.30 a.m. in the morning. She said he was swaying back and forth and looked out of it. However, she couldn't recall whether it had been the night of the party or the next day. Another woman, Cindy Hofflin, interacted with Andy Larson that same night. She noticed Andy's pupils were dilated, perhaps indicating he had something other than alcohol in his system. Perhaps his earlier claims of LSD use were true. However, Cindy did take a couple of swigs from Andy's ever-present wine bottle, but she did not feel any effects of LSD intoxication. Cindy had to be home by 11 p.m. and was getting into her car to leave at that time. Andy Larson, uninvited, jumped into her car unexpectedly, holding her hand and expressing his fondness for her, claiming he preferred her over all the other girls at the event. He invited her to stay longer and proposed a stroll in the field, which was the same field where Kathy Pausebon's body would later be discovered. Cindy spent roughly 15 minutes with Andy in the car, but refused his offer for a walk. She headed home after 11 p.m., but not before reluctantly kissing Andy Larson. Dennis Bassanessi said that at the laity party, Andy Larson proposed he have a drink from his gallon of wine. Dennis declined this invitation. Following his refusal, Larson made a hostile remark suggesting, How about I smash it over your head? To which Dennis responded with a simple, no thanks. So this guy sounds a bit like an a-hole. A bit like an a-hole, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, it's... Yeah, well, I always hated people. So, you know, you go out to have fun at a party, right? And there's a troublemaker. Not every time, but mm -hmm. often there's one aggro guy that's like jumped up, chest beating, you know, being rude to to people he's, he's trying to make passes on and threatening mm -hmm. people. It's like, if you can't just have a good time, don't come to the party. Dennis Bassanessi later asserted that, in his opinion, Andy didn't appear to be seriously inebriated at the moment he threatened him. Regardless, Andy finished off the bottle himself at some point during the lady party. Dean Kirkhuse was present at the lady field party on the same evening. He arrived between 11 and 11.30. As he was driving into the gathering, he slowly passed by Andy Larson, who kicked the side of his car. Dean stopped and asked Andy why he'd done that, and Andy said he thought Dean's car was a cop car sent to spoil the fun again. Dean said he accepted Andy's explanation as his car was a white Ford Ranchero, a model resembling that used by police at the time. Five minutes or so later, Dean chatted with Kathy Pausebon and noted that she was in high spirits, seeming bubbly. He had to move his vehicle 40 minutes after he arrived, and around 20 minutes later, Dave Hamilton approached him and asked him to help search for Andy Larson. Andy was nowhere around. Dave wanted to leave the party, but had traveled with Larson, but couldn't find him anywhere. 
Dean briefly helped Dave look for Andy, but became distracted and left Dave to search for Andy alone. Dean Kirkhughes later recounted seeing Andy Larson and Dave Hamilton departing from the party in a red and black Camaro from the late 1960s with another man, Bert George, also in the vehicle. It was around 12.30. The car came toward Dean from the southern end of the road near the turnaround area, which incidentally was where Kathy's body would eventually be discovered. Dean approached the vehicle to ask if they were heading out for a last call or what their plans were. However, the car's occupants did not respond, and they didn't even roll down the window to acknowledge him. They just continued driving. Dave Hamilton was driving quite quickly and recklessly, considering the lane was crowded with partygoers in their vehicles, making the narrow road feel even more constricted. Dean thought it was unusual for people leaving such a gathering not to respond when asked what they were doing, as everybody would typically indicate where they were going, home or to another destination. Maybe the party was going to continue somewhere. Their abrupt departure was peculiar to Dean Kirkhughes and stuck in his memory for years after. Dean left the party close to 1 a.m. and was among the last to do so. In the meantime, Leanne Edel was quite distressed because she was ready to leave the gathering but couldn't locate Kathy Pausabon. They had planned for Kathy to spend the night with her, but she was nowhere to be found. Perhaps, she thought, Kathy had left with someone else. When Kathy didn't come home the next day, her family became worried and reported her missing to the local police. After discovering Kathy was last seen at the 18-acre lady property, a search party was struck and began looking for the 16-year-old. A few of the searchers were youngsters like Dean Kirkus, who'd been at the party and felt compelled to look for his missing friend. At around 2 p.m. on Sunday, October 15, 1978, directed by a high school teacher, Jim Lindsay, who'd spotted something in a nearby field after climbing up a silo for a better look, searchers found Kathy's partially nude body in a field near the site of the party, around 100 meters away. More after a quick break and our Supernatural Circumstances trailer. Hey, Dark Poutine listeners, Mike here. Are you ready to dive deep into the mysteries of the supernatural? Join me and award-winning paranormal researcher Morgan Knudsen as we dissect chilling phenomena on supernatural circumstances. From spine-tingling hauntings to creepy cryptids and other paranormal subjects, we'll be your guides on this extraordinary journey. We're in Season 2 right now, so there are plenty of episodes for you to catch up on. Buckle up and explore the unknown with us and numerous expert guests. Download Supernatural Circumstances wherever you podcast. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? So... Imagine that, okay, I have no sympathy, first of all, okay, for somebody who murders somebody or rapes Right, them. yeah. Imagine you do something in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. You think you got away with it. Right. And over the decades, DNA advances and you're starting to see news stories. Yeah. Like, would you be crapping yourself worrying that it's going to come around to you? Or I, I bet you, you know, because there's been so many cases solved with DNA lately mm-hmm. that uh, there are people who are just, you know, they thought they'd gotten away with it and are crapping their pants waiting for the knock on the door. Imagine living like that. No, thanks. It'd be horrible. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that DNA advances got the guy. Let's 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 go get into this and see who did it. Yeah. Well, if they're perhaps, you know, a psychopath like Dennis Rader, he did this thing that um, he would essentially compartmentalize his life from his crimes. I can't I can't remember what it was called, but it was like putting things in a box. So he had a box mentally in which all his crimes lived, and then he lived his life as a just a regular guy. So the murder box and the normal box. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the murder box and the normal box didn't mix. I'm glad you don't have a murder box. I'm pretty sure I don't have a murder <laughs> box because I am eaten alive by things that I feel guilty about. Like I've got all this th- stuff that I'm procrastinating on right now. 
and oh my god, I'm having trouble sleeping because I wake up thinking about it. <laughs> Me, yeah, I do the same thing, right? Or, or if, or if you think like you, you may have been uh, like no more than just a normal human being, but a little bit short with somebody. Mm. Like if I do that, and they might not even notice, but I still feel like guilty sure. the next day. Right? Yeah, well, that's why I often, if I've done that with somebody, I'll apologize. Yeah, you always text me. Yep. <laughs> Don't hate me. It's been a rough day. Yeah. Fair. It's fair, Mike. Well, let's move on. It was immediately clear when the search party found Kathy's body that she had most likely been sexually assaulted during her murder. According to court documents, quote, her body was spread-eagled and her genitals elevated and exposed. She was nude except for part of her upper body. Her sweater was around her neck and her bra had been pulled up, leaving her left breast completely exposed, end quote. The evidence indicated that Kathy was rendered unconscious from a blow to her head and then dragged from a barbed wire fence nearby to the point where her body was eventually found. The evidence also indicated that she was sexually assaulted and strangled at the place where she was discovered. The condition of the grass, the blow she received to her head, and the bruising to her neck suggested she was alive when she was dragged from the fence between 150 and 150 feet from where her body lay. It appeared that her clothing had been removed before she died or while she was in the process of dying. The marks evident on her neck led investigators to surmise Kathy had been strangled manually. After a thorough medical examination, coroner Doug Jack confirmed Kathy Pazabon's cause of death to be asphyxiation and that she died sometime soon after midnight on the morning of October 14, 1978. How the heck does this happen at a high school age party? Yeah, right. We we were talking about how much we relate to this, and then here's where it goes off the rails. Because this never happened at a party that I went to. No, and and people, you know, high school kids are there for a good time. They're just having some fun, and then, like what you just read is just so brutal, and she's mm -hmm. just left like that, right? Yeah. Yep. It's um, it's hard to fathom how. Just it just feels like there was suddenly this this escalation of this horrible thing that should have been there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I feel for her. she's only sixteen. God. Yeah, I mean, there's we we've got a picture of her here. She was cute. Yeah, you know, like Porth. yeah, just like innocent sixteen year old girl. Uh, absolutely, just you know, she would have been living her life now. Yeah. Oh boy. Kathy had, in fact, been sexually assaulted. The encounter had not been consensual. This is graphic. From court documents, quote, There was injury to her labia, which was consistent with being caused by an erect penis. Her own blood was found on the clothes she was wearing. What appeared to be bite marks were on her breast. One of her own pubic hairs was found in her mouth. Semen was found in her mouth and larynx. Semen was also found on the sweater she was wearing at the time of her death. Finger bruises on her inner thighs were consistent with her thighs being pried apart, end quote. There were 28 hairs in Kathy's palm that did not belong to her and may have indicated she'd fought her attacker. The hairs found in Kathy's hand ranged from 8 to 12 inches in length, and as it was the 1970s, plenty of male partygoers had longer hair. Swabs were taken from Kathy's body, including her larynx and throat, as well as her sweater and preserved. These included seminal fluid. Kathy, born on April 13, 1962, to William Victor and Florence Elizabeth Posebon, was a well-liked grade 11 student at Garibaldi Secondary School at the time of her murder. And of course, this caused her classmates and teachers and the community at large a massive amount of concern and grief. The finger-pointing started right away, but no one really knew who'd killed her, other than her murderer, of course. According to a later province newspaper article, one dark rumor claimed that Kathy had been dosed with LSD and passed around during a gang rape. There is no evidence to prove this to be the case. Kathy was said to be friendly and outgoing and loved team sports. Her classmates planted a tree in her memory outside the school's entrance. She was buried in Maple Ridge Cemetery. The plaque on her grave marker reads, All things bright and beautiful. 
An RCMP task force of nine investigators included a pair of experienced investigators from the Special Crime Section in Vancouver. By November 1st, the Surrey leader reported the team had interviewed 160 people, including all the partygoers, and had, quote, no new leads. Every male who attended either party became a person of interest to the police. All denied knowing what happened to Kathy Pausebon. On November 7th, the Times colonist reported that investigators had a short list of, quote, less than 10 suspects in Kathy's murder. Among them was Dean Kirkhuse, who'd helped in the search for Kathy, and Andy Larson, who'd had a few run-ins with others at the party. There were a couple other guys on the list as well. Dorothy Clark from the RCMP's Hair and Fiber Unit compared the hairs in Kathy's hand with samples from the shortlisted suspects. Ms. Clark could not conclusively establish a single source for the hair samples from the suspects. She could only suggest whether the samples were consistent with a particular source, so they came from the same head of hair. She just couldn't determine whose it was. At least one suspect, Andy Larson, was given two polygraph tests during the investigation in 1978. It's unknown what the results of those tests were, as that's not public. And the case grew cold. You know, a cold case like this, it's a small town, right? Mm-hmm. And it's still kind of a smaller community. Sure. Could you imagine the cloud over everybody that was at that party in the com- in the community? There definitely was, and, and we'll get into how it affected a few of them later on. Okay. In 1988, Sergeant Stavenyord and his team revisited Kathy Pausebon's unsolved 1978 murder case, re-interviewing previous suspects and witnesses to uncover any new information. The men, including Andy Larson, were interviewed at the police station, while the women were interviewed at their homes or workplaces. Larson's recorded interview proceeded without him being informed of his legal rights, as he was not being treated as a suspect, but as a potential source of new information. During the interview, Andy Larson pointed at Dean Kirkus as the most viable suspect in Kathy's murder. A portion of the conversation, as recorded by investigators, was later released in court documents. It follows, and it's hard to read, because it's the way people speak. Larson. Yep. Uh, One name you mentioned was Kirkhuse. Dean Kirkhuse. I don't know why, like, I mean, there's no reason for me to say anything or implicate him or in any other way, but it was like everybody that I knew, they just sort of left him alone after that. Like, it seemed like he just went on a bit of a loner trip. Sergeant Stavenyord. Uh, well, I'm aware of that, too. In the Because it was his crew, Neubauer and Wallbank, and all were at his ranchero, and they were basically the last ones supposedly to see Kathy alive. So there was a lot of heat put on him. Um, even press clippings in the newspaper didn't mention it by name, but mentioned their car, and everybody knew who they were talking about. So it's my understanding that, yeah, a lot of people wanted to shy away because they didn't know if he was or he wasn't, or whatever. Larson, yeah. Sergeant Stavenyord. Yeah, so yeah. Larson. Yeah, and that's like, um, I don't remember who even or what people I know that have talked about him like years ago at the time this is happening and all that kind of stuff. And um, he sort of seemed freaked out about the whole thing in a different way. Other than not being able to string a sentence together, he seems, right. like, he, he seems like he's intentionally redirecting here. Well. To me. Pr- right? <laughs> right? I mean, that's how one would think. However, after the interview, where Larson appeared truthful to the sergeant, Stephen Jord recommended that he should not be regarded as a suspect. It would be another 10 years before Kathy's murder was once again reinvestigated. DNA technology had improved to a point where the investigators believed that the samples taken from Kathy's body would potentially match with samples to be taken from the six remaining persons of interest in her death. By the late 1990s, advancements in DNA technology had transformed forensic science, enabling more accurate and reliable DNA comparisons. The polymerase chain reaction, PCR test, became a key tool, allowing for the amplification of tiny DNA samples into quantities sufficient for analysis. The adoption of short tandem repeat STR analysis became the gold standard for genetic fingerprinting due to its precision and the small sample sizes required. Automation and computerization streamlined the sequencing and analysis of DNA, considerably cutting down the time needed for processing. 
the establishment of comprehensive DNA databases facilitated the swift cross-referencing of DNA profiles from different cases and individuals. Techniques such as the mitochondrial DNA, mtDNA, analysis provided options for examining degraded samples, and Y-chromosome analysis offered a method for tracing male lineage, proving especially useful in complex forensic cases. Moreover, enhanced quality control measures and standardized procedures ensured the consistency and accuracy of DNA testing across laboratories, significantly increasing the role of DNA evidence in solving crimes. These technological strides by 1998 had notably expanded the capabilities of law enforcement agencies to solve cold cases and secure evidence for ongoing investigations. Of the men whose DNA was compared, one sample matched the DNA of the preserved seminal fluid taken as evidence in 1978. It belonged to Andrew Wayne Andy Larson, who now lived in Mission, B.C. From court documents, quote, On September 10, 1998, Sergeant Paulson and Constable McLeod went to the Larson's home. The officers introduced themselves to Andy, who had gotten out of bed after being awakened by his mother. Sergeant Paulson, Constable McLeod, and Andy Larson sat at a table. Larson's mother sat in the adjoining living room. Sergeant Paulson told Larson he was from the Unsolved Murder Unit. He asked Andy if he would provide a blood sample so that it could be compared with DNA found at the location of Kathy Pausebon's murder. Larson agreed to provide a blood sample. End quote. Larson signed a biological evidence consent form and said he did not want to talk to a lawyer. Sergeant Paulson then gloved up and took a sample of Andy's blood, after which Andy initialed the container used for the sample, as requested by the investigators. They said it was to preserve the chain of evidence. Before they left, the officers told Andrew Larson that the results of the comparisons might take as much as two or three months. The results pointing to Larson as the suspect in Kathy Pazabon's murder came back 92 days later. On February 9, 1999, the Abbotsford News reported Andrew Wayne Larson's arrest in the more than 20-year-old murder case. The article indicated that Kathy's family was not pleased with how the original investigation had been conducted, but they were relieved at the arrest of a suspect. At the time of his arrest, Andrew Larson was a married man and had children. He'd lived a life, something Kathy Pausabon did not have a chance to do. It was revealed that in 1997, an anonymous woman had called an RCMP tip line indicating that she felt Larson was responsible for Kathy Pausabon's murder. Larson was released on $125,000 bail two months after his arrest and returned home to await trial. He pleaded not guilty to the first-degree murder of Kathy Pausabon. Imagine the conversations that are going on in that house over this time frame. Right. I feel for his family. You know, if if, if his wife didn't know anything at all, mm. this train crash of information would just totally hit and destroy your life. Totally. Yeah. And, you, you, you know, all of a sudden you learn that your dad may or may not be a murderer. Yeah. Like, holy crap. Here you are. You, you've just lived this life with this person who's your father. And then you find out that he's been arrested, accused of a horrifically brutal rape and murder. Well, it could go either way. Either they'd be totally shocked or it could be, yeah, the prick, I could see it, him doing it. Right? Yeah, maybe. Sometimes people have a, 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 a good understanding of who their family members are. Yeah. At Andrew Larson's 2001 trial, the DNA evidence and other forensic findings were presented along with corroborating stories recalled by 1978 partygoers, which put Larson unaccounted for around the time that Kathy was presumed murdered. According to the Vancouver Sun, expert witnesses testified the probability of matching an unrelated individual at random from the Canadian-Caucasian population was 1 in 2 trillion. Much was made by Larson's defense team about the inconclusive hair comparisons made in 1978 and the fact that over the 20-year interval, the RCMP had destroyed the hair samples so that they were no longer available for comparison. Perhaps someone else had actually killed Kathy. They also tried to use Andrew Larson's level of intoxication as a defense, perhaps to mitigate between first-degree and second-degree murder. 
This was disputed by numerous witnesses who stated that Andy did not seem overly drunk throughout the night and seemed well in control of his actions. In his decision, Honorable Mr. Justice S.R. Romilly said that he found that although the case was circumstantial in nature, the Crown had proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Romilly wrote in part, quote, In this case, there is evidence that the accused was in the company of Kathy at the Blackstock Party and the Lady Field Party. There is evidence that shortly before the disappearance of Kathy, the accused tried to prevent Joan Johnson from leaving the party. Shortly after that, he tried to convince Cindy Hoffland to stay at the party and go into the field with him, the same field where Kathy's body was found. There is evidence that Kathy was last seen near the area where her body was found with a group of 25 individuals, one of whom was the accused. There is also evidence that after Dave Hamilton said something to Dean Kirkhuse, they both set about searching for the accused. There is evidence of the hurried manner in which the accused, Dave Hamilton and Burke George, left the party. Lastly, there is the evidence of the DNA match. In my view, the evidence in this case is inconsistent with any rational conclusion but that the accused committed first-degree murder of Kathy Pazabon on the date alleged in the indictment. I find that the Crown has proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. I therefore find the accused guilty of first-degree murder as alleged in the indictment. End quote. As a postscript to his decision, Romilly went on to mention the poor treatment of other suspects in the case by the police. Quote, Evidence was led that in 1978 the police believed that Dean Kirkhuse was somehow responsible for Kathy's murder. The evidence suggests that the police treated him, Dave Hamilton, and Burt George very badly. Although these young men ranged in age from 16 to 18 at the time, they were apparently questioned by police for long periods of time and refused permission to call either their parents or a lawyer. What was even more reprehensible was that the views of the police were somehow leaked to the media. Part of the leak was the description of the type of car that was occupied by the three young men, who the police claimed were the last persons to have seen Kathy alive. He continued, quote, in a small community such as Maple Ridge, it was not difficult for citizens to realize to whom the media were referring. This behavior must have had a devastating effect on the lives of these three innocent young men. This type of publicity obviously made them the targets of a whispering campaign in Maple Ridge. In my view, while the damage done to these young men may be irreparable, it may not be too late for a public apology to be made to them. One could only suggest that that would be the right thing to do. End quote. As he was convicted of first degree murder, Andrew Wayne Larson, 44 at the time, was later sentenced to life with no possibility of parole for 25 years. And this would make him 70 years old when he would become eligible for parole, but considering the brutality of the crime, in all likelihood, he might remain in prison longer. As would be right and proper. Mm, yeah. We're getting to that time now, you know, like this case was 2001, I believe, is when he was convicted. So we're getting to the point where he's either out on parole now for some reason because he served half his time or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not entirely sure how things work, but sometimes it's very confusing. This, this is the thing with, like, mitigating circumstances and uh, aggravating circumstances. Okay, he, he has been found guilty of murdering a young girl at a party when he was a kid, too. Yeah. However, you know... He, he didn't... He, he let everyone suffer not knowing for decades. Right. Yeah, so, like, it, it's, it's... So that's the, that's the opposite of, what's the opposite of mitigating? Condemning? Aggravating. Aggravating. Aggra yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a rough one. It is. Um, it, I, it, these I, ones are always hard. I don't know why you do these ones to me. Yeah. Well, uh, Sergeant Bob Paulson, who'd taken Larson's blood sample in 1998, went on to become the RCMP commissioner. And he, he told Global News in 2014 in an article that, he will always remember Kathy Pazabon and his involvement in the investigation into her murder. He said, quote, You're never going to bring Kathy back to her mother, but there was something that you did right. You gave this family who killed their daughter. He continued, There was some guy that was walking around the planet before we got there thinking he got away with it. Now he's in jail for the rest of his life. 
Case closed. Well, yeah. Rest of his life, maybe. I don't know. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 293, Cold Case Turned Hot, The Murder of Kathy Pazabon. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Let's listen to our first voicemail. Hello, guys. This is Julia calling from Italy, where I currently work, southern Italy, somewhere halfway between Rome and Naples. But I'm actually from Austria, and I partially grew up in Canada. I wanted to thank you for your podcast, which I immensely enjoy. I happened upon it while I was in Canada playing in the Underwater Rugby World Championships this summer. And afterwards, we traveled around a bit and listened to your podcast, long, long, long stretches of Canadian roads that we traveled along. Um, and uh, I hope you recover from COVID soon. I got it while in Canada, and it can be a bummer, so I hope you get better soon. I'm, I actually wanted to send you a voicemail for the 600th episode, but then time got away from me here in Italy with my job. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing if you figure out what I do. Anyway, I wanted to thank you for the podcast, the stories, the glimpse into Canadian society and society at large and into how people function inside their brains. I find it fascinating and I also find it really lovely to listen to you talk about yourselves and your lives. So thank you for all of that from Italy slash Austria and all the best for the future. Bye. From Italy. Wow. That's great. And Austria. Italy and Austria. So I'm looking at, I read, just ran a report of our, <laughs> our listens from Italy. And uh, since we've joined Megaphone, which was in July of 2022, we've had 2,143 downloads from Italy. So thank you for being one of those who listened to our show. Absolutely. And yeah. In terms of it, so first of all, underwater women's rugby, cool. Right. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a rugby fan. And yeah, Matthew's I, a big rugby fan. I, but I know nothing about underwater rugby, so I'm now going to look it up. But I think uh, I was actually supposed to be in, in Yulia, in your um, home country uh, this uh, Christmas, but I, I need to delay that. I'm thinking about going into the spring to Vienna. And I think your job other than your rugby, is ensuring around the world that people are baking sacra torts properly. What, what's that? Well, there's a hotel in Vienna called Hotel Sacker, and they created this cake called a sacra tort. And um, I've actually had one from the hotel in Vienna, and mm -hmm. it is perhaps one of my favorite desserts. So, so that's Yulia's job, making sure that they're baked properly around the world well that's Cur fun. Current, I, currently in italy doing i like <laughs> i like i like ensuring that i try local <laughs> cuisines like when i went to louisiana i had to make sure that i had a beignet from the proper beignets place have you never had a sacred tart no i have never oh, had it. so good yeah i'll have to try that yeah let's listen to another voicemail Hi, Mike and Matt. My name is Virginia, and I am from southwestern Ontario, a little town called Princeton. I apologize for being tardy, but I just wanted to congratulate you on your sixth anniversary and wish you a happy Halloween. Well, thank you. Thank you, Virginia. My, my mother is also named Virginia from southwestern yeah. Ontario. Maybe she's my mom. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what do you think she does there in uh, southwestern Ontario, she, She's a professor at Princeton University in Princeton, southwestern Ontario. Oh, yeah. This Princeton <laughs> University has, like, underwater firefighting and... Uh, 
<laughs> like those kind of things, right? A I, basket weaving 101. I wonder if anyone calls her Ginger, because that became my mom's name. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, okay, here's another one. Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is your friend Kathy in North Vancouver. I've just finished catching up on all your Spooktobers, and what a marvelous job you guys did. I just wanted to uh, say Happy Halloween and Happy Anniversary. Six years already. Holy cow. I think um, I was really touched by your work on the Cree stories. I... uh, especially the star people and the fiddlers. My granny was a fiddler, but not from the Sandy Lake fiddlers. And I'd never heard that story. So I'm glad, glad that I've heard it. Thanks, you guys. Bye. Now, Kathy is a good friend of ours. Matthew, you've met Kathy. Yes, Kathy I have. Had some online things it's that nice we've done. Hear, Kathy. Yeah, and Kathy does the books for Dark Poutine. So, and, and her voice also reminds me of something I've been procrastinating about, which is getting my taxes done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm so terrible at this. Like, I just don't want to do it. I hate the whole, like, uh, collating everything together and blah, blah, blah. But Kathy, we know what Kathy does. She, she keeps books for different companies, but does she have a hobby, Matthew, maybe that we can give her? I'm wondering. Does Kathy have a hobby? Yes. Yeah. What would be her hobby, Matthew? If if we know what she does, we know where she lives. So uh, I I think she. Um, so we know what she does for a living. I think she helps to tag whales so they can be tracked. It's, oh, she interesting. Yeah. So she's out there with a harpoon at on the end of a boat. Not a harpoon. Like in jaws. Not, not a harpoon. Like a a little tagging thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's, it's a harpoon, but. Trying to save whales using the word harpoon (laughs) sounds like the wrong word to me. Probably not the right (laughs) word. Anyway, so thank you, Kathy, for calling it. She warned me that she was going to do it, and I appreciate it that she did. All right, and here is our last voicemail, and it looks like it's from either Nova Scotia or PEI because that's the area code, so let's hear it. Hey, this is Megan. I'm from Nova Scotia. Um... I just wanted to call to wish you guys a happy sixth anniversary. I'm a day late, but I just wanted to call and say, hey, you guys are awesome. And yeah, I can't wait for more episodes. Okay, take a shit in your head. Bye. <laughs> well, thank you. Good to hear that home, a down-home accent again. I love it so much. What does Megan do for a living, Matthew, there in Nova Scotia? In Nova Scotia, yes, I think she's a she. I think she's a DNA technologist. Oh well, that's pro- that's very relevant. It is to, very relevant uh, what we do here because we talk about that a lot. Yeah, she she's the one that uh, figures it out. So she figures out who your cat's related to because it's cat. Maybe. Am I related to my cat? (laughs) Am I related to my kitty? Well, actually, we are related. I'm putting on my nerd glasses here. We are actually related to kitties in some way. Uh, Yeah, let's not get into that. We're all mammals. Uh, Anyway, thank you so much for the voicemails. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 1-877-327-5786 or... 1877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Well, there you go. Again. There we go. Yeah. We're we're so grateful that we can do this. Um, next up we have Patreon and Donut Money Donors. I'm not sure, Matthew. Patreon seems to be falling off a bit. I'm not sure what we need to do to to prop it up or to do something about it, maybe. Uh, But it just seems to be, oh, well, just sort of dying a little bit. But that's okay. It is what it is. (laughs) We do have some new patrons this week, though. Uh, 
First up, we have Susie Bowles, and Susie is from Fort McMurray, Alberta, one of the hardy souls that lives way up there in Fort McMurray, Fort Mac, that's seen so much adversity, and uh, uh, it's kind of cool that uh, people are still kicking it up there. Yeah, after the yeah. after the fire. Yeah. So what do you think Susie does in Fort Mac, I'm, I'm going to take a guess. I think she's a radiologist for breast cancer. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's that's quite a job. Yeah, that's rather specific, but I don't know. I was just getting that. I'm getting that vibe. You're getting that vibe. Well, yeah. you know what? Everybody needs a good doctor because, you know, okay. like especially ones that specialize. Absolutely. That, it takes a long time to get a specialty in the, in the medical profession. So good on you, Susie. And it takes a long time to get a specialist when you have a problem. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this last name right. Probably but, not. Uh, probably not. <laughs> uh, this person calls herself Catherine Bag with two G's and an E. Um, and there's also another name that I don't know if she wants put out there. So Catherine Bag, and she is from New Bedford, Massachusetts. New Bedford. Park the car in Harvard Yard and make sure you wear a sweater. <laughs> Where do you pick these things up from, Mike? Well, that is a Massachusetts accent. Is that all of Massachusetts? Well, it is the, it is the, uh, let's just say the cliche Massachusetts accent. So, you know, I, my grandmother had the cliche Lunenburg County accent. She had it. So I, you know, I have no accent. Exist. You have a Southwestern Ontario accent. You definitely do. I know it's changed. <laughs> my Nova Scotia accent changed over the years too. Uh, but you know, that's the way it is. <clears throat> I'm still feeling kind of crummy from the COVID stuff. Yeah. But anyway. So what do you think Caitlin does there in New Bedford, Matthew? Was it Caitlin? Yes, it was. Okay. I think Caitlin is a handbag designer. Is a handbag designer. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of cool. Bags. B-A-G-G-S. I need, I need a Trademark registration. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's fun. Yeah, and we did have one donut money donor this week. And... Her name is Courtney Forgang, and we don't know where Courtney's from or what she does, Matthew, so you're on. Courtney is from Courtney? Mm-hmm. Right? She's okay. na named after the town she's born in? Or is well, it her, la her, her name, Courtney, is spelled differently than the Courtney. Yeah, they the just, place. her parents just wanted to shake it up a little bit. Right? Shake it up a little bit, sure. Shake it up. Yep. And she spends her life... Not working, but trying to stop old growth forests from being cut down. So what, you can find you, her at any day. You can find her chained to a <laughs> a gate. <laughs> chained to a gate. Yeah. So she, Courtney spends her time chained to gates. Yeah. Well, that's good for good for Courtney. Somebody's got to do have it. Old, you have old growth stuff on your brain because you were just uh, sort of in that area when you went up to Tofino. You you and Justin stomped around the big forest. I do. And when you see it, you get it. Yep. When you see it, it's funny. Like when you, like if you've never been to British Columbia or an old growth forest, you're like, well, mm -hmm. people need wood. But once you see it and sort of the, um, well, the trees themselves, but also all of nature that uh, lives off of them, yep. um, you kind of realize why they need to be protected. There you go. It hits anyway. home. Yeah. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that is it for this episode of Dark Poutine. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye.